Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady. My co-host, Matt Scott, is not with me today because he is currently in Zurich celebrating his birthday. Happy birthday, Matt. Thanks for being amazing. And we have Dr. Brian Bass with us today. This will be our first third time guest because we never get through all the cool things we want to talk about. Thank you so much for being back on the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me again, Scott. Oh, it's good, man. And and the last time that we got done, we, we were talking about it. Well, we forgot to talk about this and we forgot to talk about that. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about watches today, which is something we've been putting off. We're going to talk about kind of everyday carry, but from an international travel perspective, uh, we're going to talk about some of the things that we wear. We're going to talk about kind of the day in the life of an archaeologist, and we're going to riff on a couple other subjects that I think will be really interesting. And special thanks to Equipped for supporting today's podcast. More than 15 years ago, Equipped Expedition Outfitters became the first American company to import the best in breed vehicle expedition equipment from across the globe. Since their humble beginnings, they have risen to become a go-to leader within the adventure travel industry, continuing to deliver a diverse portfolio of reliable, long-lasting products backed by unparalleled customer service. From shelter solutions from EasyOn to portable fridges from National Luna to aluminum storage boxes from Alubox, their ever-growing selection of best-in-class gear increases your capability, comfort, and confidence during any adventure. Visit EquippedOne.com to gear up. What has been new? What is going on in your world right now? Good question. Uh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, no no totally. pressure is the third time. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess last time, uh, Matt Scott was somewhere off he was, on some adventure. Which is good. Which is good. <laughs> yeah, mostly been working on a, a number of local archaeological projects in, in the Santa Barbara, greater Santa Barbara area, doing uh, archaeological consulting. That part's all regulatory driven. It's not yeah, because sure. people want to go find cool stuff in their backyard, right. going through some permitting or planning process. And so I'm helping them get through the quagmire of yeah. the bureaucracies, you know, at the local level. And then you do get to find cool stuff sometimes. Yeah, actually with that kind of archaeology, I usually recommend avoiding the resource whenever possible, Sure, which sounds counterintuitive. Obviously, you know, I want to excavate stuff and check it out and learn more about our collective past. But frequently when we find stuff, it can get quite expensive. I always tell my clients when we have to break out the dental pick and the toothbrush. Sure do the math on the per hour rates that, yeah. that I have or crew that I use. And so then we'll say, Hey, can you guys move your hot tub about <laughs> 10 feet this way? And sure. we'll just make this, you know, kind of an ornamental vegetation. And what's the most interesting thing that like surprised you, you were in the middle of a dig and then you came across something that completely surprised you anywhere in the uh, that, world, that, that's, I guess. That's a good question. Well, I mean, on the academic side, you know, when we're doing pure research, frequently we know we're going to be finding something if we've already established that there's a site there and we know the period yeah. and everything like that. But with the consulting side, there's been some interesting finds. For example, I had a project just across from the train station in Santa Barbara. Okay, uh, I want to say it was train station was uh, set up in 1907, so 1903, something like that. And across the road, they were putting in a children's museum in this one location that used to be where the conductors and other staff on the train could, I think, overnight or just take a, take a breather when they would clean the train out. And when we started digging there, we found what was predominantly the, the first class dinner service oh. uh, that had just been thrown into this dump. And a lot of the plates, egg cups, uh, 
silverware that was, of course, it had like the Southern Pacific stamp and logo on it. Sure. It was like maybe the cleaning crew didn't want to have to deal with cleaning the stuff. So they sure. just dumped it in this location. Or it accidentally ended up in the trash. Yeah. yeah but, but a lot of the stuff uh, wasn't broken. And we found just bizarre Tabasco jars and sure. Tabasco little bottles and things like that that they had back then. Amazing. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting. It was just unexpected. And it's, it's of course, artifacts that, that you know, as, as a guy of modern times, I can relate to and yeah. you can kind of project yourself into the first class carriage and see people ordering you know, all this crazy oh, amazing. stuff. Yeah, because railway, certainly like the first form of mechanized overland travel. And, and it, it, was, was, it yeah. was something that was very special and it allowed people to to transit the country with a lot of efficiency, a lot more efficiency than we ever had before. And you can see why they had the same spirit of travel and adventure that we did. Totally. Um, although they did get the egg cups, which I don't think I've ever brought one on oh, a trip. Crazy, right? <laughs> we found, we also found like giant clam. Interesting. But the, the dishes were shaped like the clam. I mean, I mean, wow. crazy stuff that I assume you could order off of a menu. I didn't dive in on doing the his, history of any of that kind of stuff. Sure. It was just, we were just dealing with the dump itself yeah. and how we're going to address it. Well, and it seems like some, some of the most significant archaeological finds have been trash heaps, trash dumps, oh, yeah. because it's just a collection of so many things. Even in Prescott here, I know that they spent a lot of time excavating the dump of old Prescott because it was a significant place in the old West. Oh yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, I territorial mean, capital. Yeah. I remember being along the Southern coast of Australia and we would come across those massive dumps of shells where the Aboriginal people had been. Yeah. The middens. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. packed with them. I mean, un- oh, yeah. when you first see it, you think like, why would this be? And then you realize like, Oh, like this is, they would go grab them out of the ocean and this is where they would sit and eat them. With, uh, and with no population pressure. Uh, exactly. <laughs> just the world's best <clears throat> locations. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So cool. Well, I think it'd be good to dig in a little bit on your newest project. Let's talk about your, you've been buying some motorcycles, man, since the last time we talked. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. Maybe since, the, <laughs> yeah, I picked up another GS, I guess. Yeah. Well, a few years back, I picked up a, uh, a 1994 R100 GS that previous owner had put the Paris Dakar or the PD package on it to some extent, which really is like the, means the tank, the 9.24 gallon tank, uh, the little fairing panels that match sure. up to the tank solo seat, the larger rack in the back. That's really like the, the crux of if you wanted to convert like an R100 GS to the PD variant. Sure. There's some other small things like the lower fairing. That kind was of the wheel down. diameter any different? No, that was no the it's same. all the same. Got Everything it. else is the same, which is the beauty of, of tracking down the parts on, on eBay or wherever. Yeah. Online, different shops is that those, that GS or that R100, the last iteration of the R100, the, the parts are completely ubiquitous, mostly and interchangeable. So you know that it'll fit on your bike if you pick up a part somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I picked that one up and that was what became the, uh, the project bike for the 40 years GS that we wrote about the first article, which was really just kind of getting it squared away and dialing it in for maximizing, I guess, the platform for international travel where it could be repaired by the rider and not have to have it serviced. And wasn't that part of the goal (laughs) with this project? Cause you have your original GS that you've owned for how long now? Bought it new in 1992. 
Okay. So Bratton Motors in San Diego, yeah, California. That, that's, that's unbelievable. So we're at 30 years that you've had that motorcycle. Yeah. Which is crazy to think, right? You bought this other one because you wanted to build something that you could, that wasn't quite as precious to you personally, but you could take it traveling, leave it in countries, come back. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The other one, I, I, maybe I'm sentimental about it. Yeah. I mean, I've actually uh, built that one out, not to a great extent, but I've modified that. I think like the first, uh, first summer that I had it in Europe sounds kind of crazy. I bought a bike in, in California and shipped it over to Europe. <laughs> it's made in Europe. Uh, I think it was my first summer crossing over to the continent from Scotland when I was in grad school. One of my buddies there, he said, man, you got to turn this into the PD. <laughs> so we went to some motorcycle shop in Hamburg and, and did it, just got all the parts and you know, a couple of sixers of beer and took it, took care of that. In any case, I kept it mostly stock, yeah. mostly stock. But this other bike, uh, it was sort of the sky's the limit. I mean, I don't even know of it, the history of the bike, although it was fairly low miles, the yeah. 1994 one that I picked up for the, the 40 years GS project. Didn't have any problem taking things off, tweaking things. There's so much for the R100 GSs. Well, the R100s in general, there's so much cottage industry out there of people that have, it's the geeks. It's the yeah. airhead BMW geeks who have come up with, you know, a better widget for some of the small things, some of the large things. Sure. Um, we relied on a lot of that where people have, it's tried and true, it's tested. Uh, they've demonstrated that what they make in their garage or, you know, they crank out 10 at a time of whatever it happens to be are better than the original and better than products that maybe HPN made back in the day for the race bikes. And so dove into that. Uh, that was, it that looks was really great. cool. It looks great. And we've, we're wrapping up a video on that as well. So those that are listening, it'll either have already dropped or it's about to drop video of you going through the details on this new GS. That'll be fun for people to check out on the Expedition Portal YouTube channel. That'll be coming out quick. And then you did buy another motorcycle though. It was a bit older. Oh yeah. Yeah. You forgot about, you're forgetting about motorcycles. I forgot about that one. Okay. Well that, yeah, I bought a uh, 1966 R69S and it wasn't my intention to buy it. It wasn't like I had the cash sitting around gathering dust, you know, under a pillow. That bike, for some reason, when I was a little kid, I don't know if I saw one. My dad didn't have one of those, but it has the tractor, you know, the sure. triangular seats on it, the Denfield seats on it. And that was like, that was motorcycle. When I was a kid, when I thought of a motorcycle, surprisingly, it wasn't some motocrosser or a mini bike. That that was, it's like a cartoon. It looks like a cartoon motorcycle in a way. Yeah. And I had the opportunity, one came up for sale. It was in reasonable Nick. It yeah. ended up needing, you know, a little bit of work to get it dialed in. It was in the price range that I can afford. And so, so I picked it up. I can't get over riding that thing. I mean, it's, it looks so great. It looks cool, but it's not just that like back in the day, you know, that was a Mr. I think it was Mr. Penton did like rode from New York to LA and then people just started and set a record, you know, whenever it was like 40 something hours, I can't remember. Sure. I mean, that's crazy. Just getting on an R69S and just going West. Yeah. It's refueling. I, I'm assuming going to the bathroom, maybe yeah. taking some food on and then just jumping back on and riding. Cannonball run. Total cannonball run. Yeah. And uh, I know people after that, you know, then chase that record and beat it, of course, on, on two wheels, but just a cool bike, super comfortable. It's it's not even a 700 cc and it has no fairing, which is you know I have been riding bikes with fairings of some kind for you know at least after you know mini bikes and stuff. So it's fun getting the bugs splattered all over. Yeah, you know, and it's a you different notice. it's a different experience. I actually because the Moto Guzzi doesn't have the bike that I ride, it doesn't have a fairing either, and it is an adjustment. You also find which helmets work better without oh. fairings. A shoe berth <laughs> works really well without a fairing. Completely. It's like they design it for that. The helmets that I would wear, like the Adventure motorcycle 
motorcycle helmets that I would wear with a big fairing, they don't work well with the Moto Guzzi without a fairing. So you kind of learn those things along the way. I also like the fact that at higher speed, you actually get this air pressure on your chest that actually relieves some of the pressure of riding the bike. So you're actually being kind of supported by the air volume that's hitting you um, as opposed to always supporting yourself on your hands with those bikes. That's pretty interesting. That's funny that you mentioned the helmets because uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that my Arai ADV helmet, I can't remember which model it is. It's one of the later models. You know, it has a visor and everything. Sure. That is the most quiet helmet without a fairing. Interesting. And I have an AGV carbon fiber one because I assumed without a fairing, you know, I'm being an older guy, right? I want to have, you know, this lightweight helmet on my head, but that AGV and I tested them all out without using earplugs because I usually ride with earplugs in the helmets. Yeah, me too. That there's a lot more wind noise around this full face kind of racing helmet coming in. I can tell I'm obviously once the earplugs go in, it kind of drowns that out. It's definitely telltale. You got to match the right helmet to that kind of wind, the way the wind flows. ADV helmet. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny though. Those bikes. So for me personally, that would be a bike that I would be really inspired to purchase because there's something about them and especially the R60 because it still has the drum brake in the front, doesn't it? You betcha. Okay. So, (laughs) which is of course terrifying, but there's something about that form with it, it being a little bit bigger bike than the earlier ones. Things are a little bit, the brakes are a little bit better and all that than like an R50 or or earlier. And I really like the overall shape of that, especially with the tractor seat on it. And then Matt Scott just recently picked up a vintage BMW motorcycle. Was his his an R50? R50. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's definitely, it's becoming a thing. So, and you know what the thing is, once you ride one, I mean, I'm, I'm riding mine to do chores Yeah, to go over to Santa Barbara and pick up the other day. I put almost 200 kilometers on the bike going to pick up medicine for one of our dogs yeah. at a pharmacy where they compound this medicine for the dog. And then I decided to do a little scoot around. And by the time I got back home, I had put 200 KMs on the thing. It's just fun. Yeah. And I think, I, think that, was, I think that was something about the BMWs back then is that they were really reliable. They were actually very well made. Older vehicles or older motorcycles, they just really aren't particularly reliable. Like if you think about a Black Shadow or something like these, like sure. Nortons and yeah. stuff like that, they were tri- early triumphs. They just really weren't that reliable of motorcycles, but the BMWs were. As a matter of fact, I have to admit that at first it's only as kickstart. I mean, you can bump start it by the way, Yeah, uh, which I'm a champ at from being a <laughs> motor, you know, motocross guy. At first I was like, oh man, you know, what if the thing doesn't start and I kind of flood it and everything like that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe at the most it's taking me like four kicks. So at first I was a little hesitant to just go out in a random public place where, okay, what if there's no hill there? What sure. if the parking lot's dead flat? And then I got to like run my butt off to you know yeah. bump the thing, but that's never the case. It always fires up. That's awesome. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's kickstart. There's no other, you know, you're not going to be you're not pushing a button or doing anything. And uh, I don't know, it kind of gets me back to really being not just analog, but, but in touch with my surroundings, like yeah. where do I park it? How do I set it up so I can kickstart it easy? You know, I mean, it's, it's cool. It just kind and of everything on that bike, you can service yourself hundred percent. And as far as the uh, chip on it, no, no zero. <laughs> well, this one actually, we converted it to, we switched it over to 12 volt and sure. then put on an electronic ignition to make it a little more reliable. Although, you know, that probably the, helps with the starting. It totally does. <laughs> Although uh, everything else that came out of it, you know, I just put back in the box and sure. literally, you know, in half a day I could turn it back 
back over to six volt. When I wrote it as a six volt, I mean, when you'd gas it, you could see like, especially at night, like the headlamp would put out a brighter <laughs> sure. beat and then you come off the gas and then all of a sudden it would sure. dim out. And I mean, you know, I can see how, you know, back in the day though, that was not the way to go yeah. on coming cars and things <laughs> totally. like that. And so now this is has like a super bright LED in there that, you know, just stays, you know, the. Yeah, uh, it looks great. To segue into our next conversation, you also had this custom billet aluminum machined little bracket for a pocket watch installed on that bike. Oh yeah, that's, that is right. So talk about that a little bit. Cause that looks so Yeah. Cool. Now that I bought one, I can give it away, right? This is uh, Hoyer made this dash clock. Actually, it looks like a pocket watch, okay. but, but it's, it wasn't intended as one. Uh, they made this uh, dash clock called the Navia. It was intended for yachts, school buses, uh, garbage trucks, locations where it's, it's shock proof and waterproof, mm. which is different than actually a dash timer where it doesn't have to have any kind of water resistant or waterproof capability because it's inside of a vehicle sure. a car. This one was made so that it might be exposed to the weather, offshore racing boats and stuff like this. Sure. I don't really know how many Hoyer made, but they, they were used on yachts, mostly speed boats, things like that. And they just kind of fallen into obscurity. It has an eight day mechanical movement. So you got to wind it and you know, then it'll stay going. Mine for about seven days, it seems. Incredible. And so I thought that would be cool just to have this sort of up by the, uh, the speedo, which is a kilometer uh, per hour speedo on the R60 that I have. And so then, uh, I had Trevor Dunn over at Dynacycle in, in Santa Barbara area, uh, in the Glita. He machined a cool little ear for it that just kind of mounts to the that looks great. tree. It's, it's actually really cool because when I'm riding along and I want to know where I got to be and when I got to be there and I can just look at that thing and I don't have to fidget with my, my left uh, sleeve to try and look at sure. my watch. And I got this little analog waterproof clock there. Yeah. No, and it does. It is. It is cool. It's big enough. It's you know, super for cool. old eyes to be able to read it. It's super cool. And uh, yeah, it's it's really nice. I dig it. We're finally going to get into watches a little bit here. We we tried to do this the first <laughs> we, podcast. We whenever, have. That was like two and, years ago. <laughs> and I think it, it's important to kind of preface that no one needs to buy an expensive watch. We're not suggesting even no. remotely that that's a good idea. There are some of us that have learned to appreciate old watches. Uh, sometimes they're expensive, and sometimes they're not expensive at all. The less expensive ones or better watches uh, than the really expensive yeah. stuff. When you think about a watch for travel, there's a couple things that come to mind. An analog watch just kind of takes a little bit of that electronic leash away from us. I do wear an Apple watch like when I exercise, but I've learned to stop wearing an Apple watch for most of the time otherwise. Although one exception to that, like on Sundays, I try to just literally put my phone away and the Apple watch has cellular capability. If I get a text from a family member or whatever, or a phone call from a family member comes through, I can still receive that, but I don't interact with the phone at all that day. So sometimes on a Sunday, I'll do that. So it gives me a little bit of a break from the electronic leash. These analog watches, I think that they have a lot of charm and they like harken back. There's historical elements to them and significance to them that I think make them really special. And then there are arguably, there are brands of watches that are a form of currency that we can carry on our person because uh, it's not like we're all walking around with $10,000 in cash. Most countries don't allow for very much cash on your person, or at least it raises questions if you have it, or why would you want to expose yourself to that kind of risk, you know, with that much cash in your pocket or your bag. Whereas these watches are very easily convertible into cash. So you kind of can look at 
at a like a Rolex Submariner, for example, as quite the get out of jail free card. Uh, you could be in essentially any country in the world and there will be a watch shop that will gladly give you a, <laughs> a pile of cash for the watch that you're wearing. So that way you can buy a ticket home. We live in an interesting time right now. There's a lot of uncertainty and unexpected events that are happening that is stranding travelers. The pandemic did that. I myself was struggling to get back to the United States. Now we have a conflict, a war in Europe that is unsettling things. And it's pretty easy to get caught in a location where you may need to convert an asset like that into getting out of jail free. Yeah, I definitely, um, I agree. Although I will say that I'm going to let all my friends pony up their watches first to get out of jail before then I pony up mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, um, but the other thing is depending on, on the brand that you want to carry with you, sometimes you just want to take a, an adventure watch along cause that's what it was made for. And you want to experience somehow have it along for, for the ride. For me now, it kind of depends on where we're traveling, but I'll carry something that's super nondescript, right? You know, it just doesn't stick out. I don't stick out in a crowd. Uh, at least by the watch that I'm wearing. Might sure. be other things, indicators, clothing, other things, um, backpacks, things like that. Yeah, I agree. You know, it can be converted to a currency. I mean, I've sold watches as a grad student to the used watch shops in Zurich, Switzerland, when I was passing through or helping out at the university there teaching. Needed some cash. Yeah, <laughs> Sell pretty watch. easily, pretty easily convertible. Ooh, that and, and old, old uh, Leica cameras, right? Old, and old like lights glass, for sure. example. I mean, you know, and then when you have like fifteen hundred dollars worth of Swiss francs, that goes along way as a grad student. It certainly does. <laughs> what are you wearing today? Well, today I have a Sin 158. I don't know how many they, they made of these. It's a recent Looks manufacturer. Looks like a chronograph. Yeah, it's a chronograph. It's the uh, it's an homage uh, watch to the old, uh, well, it started out as a Hoyer and later Sin took over the repair and production of them for the Bundeswehr, the German army. It's like a, a throwback. The, the original ones, the ones made by Hoyer and then the ones that were taken over by Sin to be repaired and, and later production ones had a, a manual movement. So you had to wind them okay. manually uh, at the crown. And so this one has a uh, an automatic movement in it, which I prefer. Yeah, actually, I've come to enjoy know. the automatics. Yeah. I mean, sure. I still forget that eight day clock that I have on the motorcycle. Yeah. That's definitely good for me because I would totally forget to wind it. And then, you know, it'll sure. <laughs> not the wrong You'll time. You'll remember one, one time in the five or six days. But you know what? I still do that. I have a few manually wound uh, watches and I, I still forget, you know, a day and a half later, I'm like, ah, oh, what? Something's wrong with this thing. It's like, well, you're just not wound. Yep. But uh, yeah, this is a cool watch. It, it has a good water resistance to it. The, the crown doesn't screw down, which isn't something I prefer. I'd rather have a screw down crown, but it, it hasn't been a problem. I know that now they have gaskets and everything that are that surpass what they had in the past. Sure. And it, everything's going to be fine with it. And I do use the chrono for things. Usually it's something silly, not something like Mr. Tactical cool guy. It's yeah. like timing how long I cook pasta, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> nothing some, wrong with that, right. Or some, something like that, that. Yeah, or bake, exactly. baking something, you know, yep. I keep it, you know, going so I can yep. track it. But uh, yeah, it's a fun watch. It's cool. The sins are, are certainly one that I've for a long time really enjoyed. In fact, the first time I saw one, was on Patrick Ma's wrist. So Patrick Ma sure. runs Prometheus Design Works. He had this sin on his wrist and I looked at it and I said, that is the cool, it was a 856. And it, there was something very simple, austere about it. It had these big numbers uh, that I really liked. And, but I've never, I haven't bought one yet. So I ended up kind of, because of being a traveler, I started to enjoy the GMTs and that kind of thing. And, and Sin has one of those, they by do. the way. Yeah, they it's do. Cool. It's a UTC. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a very cool watch. And so that one's kind of on the short list for me. Today, I'm actually wearing uh, a watch that 
my dad gave me, which is one that I wear most often now. So it's a very early Seiko chronograph. So this would be from very late 1969 into early 70. I don't know what exactly the timing that my dad's watch was made. For my birthday last year, we were all at the house and I was opening a it was just a, a watch winder that I was going to, that I wanted to be able to keep the watches going, the automatics. And my dad says, you know, I've got a cool old watch. And so he goes off 20, 30 minutes rummaging around and he comes back with this Seiko. And it turns out that it's just a very cool watch. It was actually the first automatic that was taken into space. One of the astronauts shoved it in his pocket in the, <laughs> to test out how an automatic chronograph would work in space. Because up to that point, it was just the Omega Speedmaster, the moon watch that was certified for those missions. Although a lot of those guys did. And they're manually wound. They are. Yeah. And, and I think that that's why they were certified is that they felt like as gravity in that changed, it wouldn't have as much of an impact on the accuracy of the watch or maybe no impact. I don't know the full story behind that. But a lot of these guys were sticking watches, Rolexes, and and in this case, a Seiko. So there was this astronaut by the name of Pogue that shoved this Seiko in his pocket and took it up and tested it out in space, which I thought was very cool. And it was also the watch that Bruce Lee wore. And I mean, I'm figuring all this out after I get my this right watch on. from my dad. It's a blue dial. It's a old school chronograph. It's got all the original scratches and that's cool. scuffed up crystal. And I took it in for service and the guy says, you know, that's going to be expensive to service. I said, it's my dad's watch. I can't really put a price on that. And I said, just don't change anything about it other than fixing it, like make it mechanically sound. Yeah. And I did buy a brand new, new old stock crystal. I have it available in case, in case. Yeah, yeah. the case itself is unpolished. All the scratches, everything. My dad owned it since new when he was in the air force, he bought it when he was in Thailand, every scratch on this watch was done on my dad's wrist. So for me, it's really special. Oh man, it's classic. Yeah. Wabi sabi. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's a Japanese yes. term. For That's that. right. I mean, every little ding and nick and scratch has a story behind it. Yep. That maybe nobody even knows what the story is, but it yep. was on a wrist when your dad was doing something. That's right. Somewhere. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's important. You know, I think it is. Yeah. A lot of, and it depends on, on the watch collector. I know a lot of the military watch people, military watch collectors want to leave it all alone. And mm-hmm. I'm definitely a fan for that. I mean, there's, there's a whole point to it. You know, you some watch that was maybe uh, handed back in after it was issued and then eventually it was decommissioned and a civilian gets a hold of it. Uh, you're not going to really know why it has all these scratches on it, but there's an importance there. There's like a, you know, it's transition to the next curator, the next yeah. owner. Sure. And uh, when you wipe all that clean, well, it, it's gone. And you can't and, get it uh, back. Yeah, you can't. And, you know, I know like, for example, the, uh, the Rolex 5517s, which was a military, it was a submariner that was made specifically for the Ministry of Defense, the British Ministry of Defense, Rolex 5513, that there was a civilian version of it, but there was also a military issue version of it. And they had uh, fixed bars. They weren't mm. spring bars. You know, most people's watches. Sure. In the early days when people were sending them back to be serviced at Rolex, they were just being cut out, that that fixed bar. because wow. So you could only use like a NATO type band. And sure. in those, you couldn't really, I guess you could clip some kind of leather around it. And I know that people did make, do make And then bands. sew it around it. That would yeah. Make or, sense. or with a little, some rivet or a screw sure. or something, but really you had to use like a nylon type of a band and uh, Rolex was clipping those fixed spring bars out. Well, it's not even a spring bar, just a fixed bar. Sure. And then putting in a spring bar thinking, well, I don't know why this was there, but we're going to just repair it. And so now, you know, people write, if they even have it serviced at Rolex, they write letters in nothing against Rolex. Cause sure. I know that there weren't so many of them made. So, right. you know, later on when some service person is looking at that and they're like, oh, why, why somebody must have drift punched this thing through. Sure. <laughs> and I just cut it out. Oh, that's but, amazing. Uh, also the crystals, you know, people would are okay with maybe polishing out like a plexi crystal a little yep. bit, but leaving in the scratches. Sure. 
and all the little marks and dings and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, there was a polishing compound that you mentioned the last time we got together. What was that that you like to uh, use? Polywatch. Okay. That's for uh, plexi crystals. You could you do it at home just with cotton balls. Mm. It'll still leave all the dings in, but it just kind of polishes everything out. Uh, yeah, it's easy to do like, you know, in 30 seconds, you're done using it. Yeah. And I did have the guy who did the servicing. Incidentally, he's right in Prescott. There's a Seiko factory. Super. Certified. Yeah. A little watch place. And he's, he's great. And I said, you know, clean up the crystal a little bit, but you know, just so it could be easier to see, because there was definitely a film that it kind of developed on the crystal that made it pretty hard to see at certain angles. And so he was able to get that film off probably you know, using some compound, but all the scratches and stuff are still there, which is That's perfect. That's the best. Yeah. That's so it's really best. amazing. Also makes it so you're not so afraid to scratch it too. Yeah. No, that's true. No. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you get something uh, so cherry. Yeah. I mean, that, that happens, especially if you've collected some watch that's rare, hard to find, or, you know, whatever, or, or a sentimental watch, yeah. or he has a couple of dings on it. You're okay dinging it a little bit more. Yeah. That happens. And what's your favorite of your collection or a couple favorites? That's a hard question. You know, I have some that I, I never wear because they just, I acquired them back when they were affordable. And now like, I, I know I would never be able to afford that watch again. So they're like the one I wear out like to dinner once in a while, Sure, which kind of goes against the, you know, don't be afraid to get dinged and stuff on it. Sure. But there's one thing when you know that the crystals aren't available or they're, you know, you're not going to buy like a crown. You don't get on eBay or some other auction site and just find a replacement crown after you've dinged it. So, you know, I become a little more conscious of that. What's one of my favorites? My go-to. Well, I, I would say, and I'm, I'm not letting the cat out of the bag here, right. but uh, one of my favorite watches has to be, and I think we talked about this when you were out visiting not long ago, the uh, Seiko, it's a 6306-7001. That's okay. the model number. Sounds like I know all these things. Yeah. I just know that one because <laughs> it's my favorite. And I actually wrote about that in that uh, travel watch article. So it's the Japanese market only version of that super ubiquitous 150 meter dive watch. Yep. Seiko made. I mean, every PX all over the planet carried them for people in the military. Any watch shop had one of those Seiko divers in it. Everyone, well, not everyone, but most people know them, especially by sight. It's uh, a the, chunky case oh, too, yeah, which I like. Yeah, the bezels were easily used. Little offset crown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's at the four o'clock position and the bezels can be used. You can, with glove, motorcycle gloves, scuba diving gloves, you know, back then, the early ones, earlier ones, they were uh, bi-directional. So the bezel went both directions. And I know that the scuba the crowd didn't favor that. You know, the early Rolexes had that too. I've never had one bounce around on me while diving because obviously you want to make sure you're keeping track of your time sure. accurately. But they had that bi-directional uh, bezel. The parts out there are quite ubiquitous except for the Japanese market one had a uh, really cool high beat movement that hacked. And that was the cool feature that the rest of the, the other 99% of them out there did not have. I'm not sure what the, what the philosophy was with Seiko for that other than something cool for the domestic market. But the other thing cool about it is they had a, a kanji and English day wheel. So, you know, say Monday and then it has the kanji or for Monday and Tuesday, et cetera. It, so it has both. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it kind of flips through. If you set it on the English setting, then it rolls through the kanji around midnight or so. And it just pops up with, you know, goes from Monday to Tuesday. Sure. But if you were awake at midnight, you'd see that the kanji would kind of pass by. And then it immediately says Tuesday, for example, it's great. you know, like at what would be the 24 hours of the rotation, but it's just a really super cool watch. They're not expensive yeah. I and mean, you could find them out yeah, there. like 1200 bucks or so. Yeah. Even cheaper if they're kind of beat up. And yeah. the thing is that the crystals for those are out there. The bezel inserts are out there. The bezels are out there. You don't have to really be a sleuth or know a guy who knows a guy who knows yeah. a gal who has a friend to come up with the parts. 
crowns. I mean, so for all the other 99% of those Seiko 150 divers, they're all out there at watch repair places and can be found. And so I think that's like one of the cooler watches. They're easy to read the dials. I mean, you know, if you have bad eyes, you know, or you're getting (laughs) your vision starting to go like mine for close up stuff, it's easy to read the time. They are quite ubiquitous in the fact that when you're out there and somebody sees that on your wrist, they'll probably assume that you're a person of some physical means. Like you like to do active action person things, but most people know that it's not an expensive watch. Sure. So to bail yourself out of, you know, get out of jail, you're not going to be, you know, the watch guy and the silk's going to go, maybe 500 bucks for that, you know, (laughs) knowing that it'll turn around and sell for a thousand. Yeah. But uh, that's one of my faves, I have to say. You know, and it's not going along the lines of most watch people. With no, it's on my watch. Switzerland. It's, it's on my. Cool. Uh, it's, it's on cool. my watch watch list. Yeah, so right. I've been looking. I've been looking for one that's a little bit on the cleaner side, and and I definitely find it to be interesting for sure. But don't be afraid to find one that's not on the clean yeah. side, and then just have it cleaned up by, especially have a, a Seiko repair person here, sure. here in Prescott. Yeah. No, I thought about that for yeah. sure, and probably the watch I've worn the most, which I got before I even thought about watches, other than just as purely a tool. So this is a a Tracer H3 automatic. And I, I got this watch just when I was starting Expedition 7 because of John Lee. In fact, I would say that most of my interest in watches came first from John Lee and Ho-Chung at Expedition Exchange because mm-hmm. they always had interesting watches. And I I just, I could never afford one or I wouldn't apply the, the resources to buying a watch like that. And they sold Tracers. So we kind of got used to the brand and, and then we ended up reaching out to them and doing a little bit of work with Tracer. And I was able to, to get this automatic and it is beat like it is really beat but that's because it has gone with me around the world three times and it's totally most of the numbers are all whacked and everything like that i mean it's just because i didn't think of it as being precious in any way and they're not that expensive new either you know around a thousand bucks twelve hundred bucks or so and i put it on a nato band and i just i literally beat it up on all seven continents yeah but that's fine it's got 24 hour dial on the uh, the inner ring there and oh that's cool it's a really simple watch yeah so i think the tracer is is one that that I do like Swiss brand. In fact, when I was going through Switzerland, I was able to stop and go in and say hello to the Tracer folks and get a sense for their operation. Really impressive company. Um, and then I think that one of the most handsome watches is that Omega Speedmaster, the, oh, the Moon Watch. It is yeah, probably a good yeah, investment as yeah. well. The first nice watch that I bought was around the 10-year anniversary of Overland Journal, but I've always wanted to get an Omega. So I waited and I waited and I bought a Omega Speedmaster and this is the craziest story though. Matt Scott sends me a text. He says, I just bought an Omega Speedmaster and he shows picture comes through. And I'm like, you got to be joking. I said, because, and I sent him a picture back. I had just bought, we bought Omega Speedmasters <laughs> on the exact same day, unbeknownst to each other. Like we had no, we had no idea. Casino that day we should have. <laughs> How crazy track. is that? Yeah. So uh, that's definitely a really beautiful watch. It's a manual wound. It's probably not the best watch. In fact, I would say it is not nearly, or even in the spectrum of best watch for travel because it is not waterproof. And I think that life happens when you're out overlanding and that's something to very much keep in mind. It is just a really handsome watch that is is not really identifiable to most people. They don't see it as a If you know it, you know it. And otherwise it just kind of disappears on on your wrist. Any other watch brands that come to mind? You have a good friend of yours, ex-Special Forces, that started making watches. 
Is it the Resco brand? Is that yeah, right? Resco. Yeah, Resco, Resco Instruments. Yeah, Robert Smith. Well, it was kind of funny how we all met, but you know, in the early days of the military watch resource, MWR, you know, we just all, we had an online forum. I mean, it was pure geekdom, 100%. Yeah. And nobody, we just met there online. You know, it was sure. the early days of chat rooms. I mean, it was yeah. so stilted and we, there weren't too many options to do anything. You know, you couldn't edit your response or whatever. And it just kind of peeled out sort of, you know, paragraph style with like a response. chat list almost. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Everyone had, most people had uh, their name just spelled with lowercase letters as the handle. Like I went by Brian, the owner of it went by Bob and Smitty, Robert Smith, his nickname Smitty, he went by Smitty. Yeah. And so nobody knew what anyone did. We just, you know, talked about watches, collecting dive watches and military watches, things like this. And then at one of our first meetings, you know, it was kind of like, Hey, so what do you do? Oh, I'm an archaeologist. Hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm a Navy SEAL. We're like, really? Like you were a Navy SEAL? No, I'm still in. I'm a Navy <laughs> SEAL. And then it was just a Navy SEAL who's, sure. who's a hardcore uh, watch collector. And and later on during his um, career in, in the Naval uh, Special Warfare, he started making his own dive watches. And I mean, talk about about just going for it. So his, it's cool. You know, he's in that, uh, that let's say price range where people can afford it. You know, I mean, now a lot of the watches are just, they're in the stratosphere really totally as far yeah. as the prices yeah, and, unobtainable. And, and also if you're going to wear them and beat them up a little bit, then, you know, I mean, I always take that into account like, Hey, that gee, that watch would be great. But you know, once I ding it, then now what, as far as like a collector piece sure, or something that I would think about selling down the line. Um, I don't really have too many that I have in that category anymore. Everything yeah. I have has to be worn or, you know, I'm getting rid of it. Yeah. Anyway, his, his watches are really great. He has sports stuff, which allows him to have a different price point for some people that maybe can't go into the four digits of, of, you know, buying a watch and then also automatic movements, cool dials, all of his stuff. I mean, he tested it, you know, way back in the day for real. Sure. And, uh, and then he still has frontline people, tier one operators using the stuff and getting back to him with comments. And so it's, it's cool. You know, his stuff's made. To yeah, it does look, up. it does look great. And then, you know, there's other brands too, that I think have come along with kind of like saying, oh, I own a Ferrari. I, I don't own a Ferrari, but yeah. you know, like saying, oh, I own a Rolex. Uh, and there's certain thing that pops in most people's mind right. when you say that, but at the same time, their watches are made to just be flogged. Yeah. And you can't get around that. And, you know, they are expensive. And I know plenty of people out there will not, even if they could afford it, couldn't justify wearing something on their wrist that's five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000 of a dive watch. Sure. When it could get lost, dinged, stolen, you put it down, you for, where is it now? You, you know, you can't, you know, you don't know where you put it disappears when you're traveling. I totally appreciate that, but you can't get over the fact that their stuff is, is really bomb proof. And uh, it's the fact. Yeah. The, yeah. A, a Rolex dive watch G MT, whatever you want to call it. These are all really, really well-made watches and they can be a decent investment. Uh, well, they don't can. lose their value. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, yep. even if you have like an early Submariner, yep. I mean, those now or an early that's, Sea Dweller, I mean, they're, it's off the charts. Yeah. Or a Daytona, if you happen to have. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Right. If you can find a Daytona yeah. or especially yeah. the super old ones. Yeah. You know, yeah, they're, I, I they're, know someone who collects the real old ones and they're, they're just, they're cool. Yeah. They're very cool. And if you buy it and, you know, six months later, you're like, eh, you know, it's not, it does I don't like wearing it or it just doesn't look right on my wrist or sure. you want to clear some cash guaranteed you can turn around and sell it 
for more than you paid for it. Yeah. In most cases. In most cases. Yeah. And, and what I do, because I, I do want to be able to enjoy them. So I insure them all. I have a personal articles policy. You can talk to your insurance agent. You can insure it for full replacement value. It's expensive to have the policy, especially if you have multiple watches. But what I didn't want to have happen was that I wouldn't wear the watch because I was worried about losing it exactly. or yep. Yep. it getting stolen. In this case, for any reason, if the watch disappears, uh, you can get your money back to go buy another one. Um, and so that that's something that I would recommend. If you're going to really take an expensive watch with you anywhere in the world or even into a big city in the United States, it's probably a good idea to, I mean, we were, we were on a motorcycle ride with some friends and we get to the top, you know, we were riding fast, twisty mountain road in Southern California. And we get to the top where we all kind of pull off and he's like, you could see him frantically looking around and he's, you know, checking and things. And, and he says, my watch is gone. And just because of how hard he was riding, the, his Rolex came off his wrist at some point on the climb and the watch was gone. It was a nice, ro- nice Rolex. Somebody so, found it. Probably, or they will at some point in the future. It'll be perfectly fine. Yeah, exactly. Pretty amazing though. Well, that's, so that's fun. We finally got to talk about watches. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a cool topic. It is. I still see myself as the current curator of the watches that I have. Yeah. I don't have that many of them anymore, yeah. but, but I kind of take that seriously. Like, you know, they will be passed on or sold on to the next person. That's and right. maybe that's just the archeologist in me about taking care of the, taking care of the artifact and making sure that when it goes on to the next generation or the next person that it's totally agree. Taken care of. And another good resource for watches too. It's something that I've just personally come to enjoy is the Hodinkee brand of, they've got a beautiful print magazine for those that are watching on YouTube. You can see this at just like Overland Journal, Perfect Bound, beautiful book. They've got a couple podcasts. One of them that I really like is the Gray NATO podcast. Jason Heaton and James Stacy are the hosts of that. And they're into overlanding. One of them's got a defender. Uh, they're adventurous guys that talk about adventurous watches. I enjoy that podcast a lot. So for those looking to find out more information about watches, they can do that. And then you wrote an article a year or so back for Overland Journal, where you talked about a lot of those watches as well. Maybe two years ago, something like that. Yeah, I think so. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. I think we want to kind of riff a little bit on kind of everyday carry travel stuff because I've definitely found that in the, well, in the beginning of overlanding, we all wore like an ex officio baggy khaki colored shirt. I, I didn't, but many people did. Yeah. Well, you were smarter than me so, and you still are. Yeah. I mean, I looked like I was a zookeeper, you know, dri- dri- driving the white rim trail in, in Utah, which there are certainly performance aspects of it, which is probably how I justified that very lame decision. When I travel internationally now, I don't want to stand out like a zookeeper in 
some foreign country. So I have definitely started to tailor my clothing and the things that I wear towards blending in a little bit more. I mean, I'm a big person, so I automatically stand out. So things that I can do to to kind of blend in, it allows me to better have an experience where I'm not the center of attention or standing out in a certain way that might elicit a response. You did that one time, remember in Kenya? Yeah. And that definitely because of your stature. Yeah, that was, (laughs) it was intimidating. I mean, like, yeah, like on the, on the verge of a things were Things were going to get interesting real fast. It was getting spicy for sure. Um, And again, I was wearing kind of this, it looked more military. I mean, I had like a khaki pair of pants on and this dark gray shirt and, and I definitely, and we got called out on that a lot by the Kenyans. Even the Kenyan military or the police kept telling us we had to disclose our mission. That was a real lesson in look like a tourist or look like a local, uh, but don't look like an operator in a country. So I've definitely changed a lot of my clothing around that. And I don't wear that stuff anymore. I always carry an Aloha shirt. And I think when we had that episode, I was wearing my green and white. looks like I just got off the plane on Maui to go for a two week vacation. Yeah. And that was, that was the right call. That was the right call. So now like actually one of my favorite shirts and I bring it with me every time I travel. So Lululemon makes this, this blue Oxford, it's stretchy, you know, comfortable material. It doesn't wrinkle. I roll it up and I take it with me on every single trip because sometimes you got to go into the consulate or you're going out to a nice dinner or you just, you want to just dress at a different level. I've got a collared shirt with me. That's super comfortable performance fabric. Doesn't carry a lot of odor. It's not cotton. So if you get a little bit wet, you know, it's not, it dries easily. You can wash it in the sink in the hotel room. I think bringing along an Oxford. Now you, you had a different Oxford that you yeah. So, uh, yeah, a couple of, of my archeology, span uh, friends, we still talk about it. Brooks brothers. I don't know if they still make them. I still have mine, so I don't need any new, new ones, but Brooks brothers made a, uh, an all hundred percent cotton Oxford. There was a short sleeve and a long sleeve, different colors. It's hundred percent cotton, but it always looks like it's no wrinkle. It looks like it's been laundered. As in, you know, with the creases down the sleeve. So whenever you had to look squared away, whatever it was, even going, like you said, going to the consulate, going out to a dinner, meeting maybe the the people that are funding your archaeological project. For sure. me, it's like meeting clients in the field where sure. I can't just roll up with the ratty t-shirt all the time. Super cool, long sleeve. So, you know, when you're out in the sun now, there's no UV, as far as I know with those, there's no UV protection. But, you know, obviously back it up a sunscreen, but they have a collar yep. uh, and, you know, you can, that's button down collar, by the way. So. Sure. If you ever had to wear like a tie, you're squared away with that, but you can also unbutton the collar and then fold it up, yeah. flip it up so that you have your neck more protected. And those things, a few of us swear by them just because you can, you know, wear it on the plane. You can have it scrunched up into a ball in your bag. It doesn't matter. You take it out, you know, it's cotton. So it, it'll, it'll carry some odor after a while. Yeah. But it doesn't is it doesn't carry for me anyway as much as things like the synthetic material. Well, so speaking like of synthetic material, I, I really do like synthetics when I'm actively traveling. But when I fly or I'm on a small aircraft or whatever, I have really avoided wearing any kind of synthetic because there is an accident and there is a fire. Something like this wool jacket that we got from Prometheus Design Works. 
It's a heavy wool coat, um, and it, there is a lot of fire resistance in wool. Yeah. So it may be just enough to throw it up over your head and get out through the flames, whereas synthetic will just bake down, literally melt onto your body. Having been a firefighter and been on several aircraft crashes, it's incredible. Sometimes people do survive those things. If you can limit the burns to your body, that makes a big difference. So wearing natural fibers, cotton is okay, wool is best. So I'll typically wear like a a wool Henley and then some kind of a wool coat like this one that I'm wearing now. I mean, uh, nowadays with the Marina wool products that are out there. So good. I think we talked about this at you know, minor length last time, last podcast, but I swear by Marina wool, every type of shirt that you could think of this t-shirt style to collared shirt mm. stuff, everything in between, there must be a dozen companies, if not more that are making stuff that's super super quality, looks super sharp. I find that it doesn't really wrinkle that much. So when it is kind of crunched into the bottom of your bag or, you know, you had to wear it one night and roll it up and then two days later, pull it back out again. Sure. Especially if you got like, you know, a steamy shower somewhere or, yeah. or in a humid uh, locales, you, know, you put it out and that thing looks totally fine. It totally does. They don't take on odor which is important, you know, people, it's like one of those, you know, people don't like to talk about it, but when you're traveling and you can't get to the laundromat, yeah. <laughs> the laundrette, you know, where it's not even available, you're really on the road where it is just washing it in water, wherever you can find it. Yep. That's a cool material. The beanies made from that are really great. Also Marina wool. I, I like it because you can layer it. You know, it's not super thick. It's not like having some super old school sweater. Yeah. Um, you can have different, different layers of it on. Yeah. That Henley that I, I have a bunch of them usually we just wear black Henleys because it doesn't show stains and stuff, but triple lot designs sells. So they're, they're made in the United States. Yeah. Merino wool Henleys and they just, they're easy to own. And I've, I've traveled them in them almost exclusively. They're great for on the plane because you get a little bit of protection from the cold and stuff when you're flying. So those are just my go-to. And then totally. triple lot design also makes a button up wool shirt. Uh, they can be a little bit warm. So you're going to be going to colder climbs or more kind of temperate climbs, but they're a nice wool button up shirt. They're great. I mean, they, they really do. And they're again, made in the United States, small company that bunch of overlanders yeah. that work there. They're pretty passionate about what we do. So it's, it seems like a good company to support. Excellent company and, and quality material, Yep. you know, that you can't, you can even repair them, you know, yeah. especially like the ones that are black or yep. dark blue. I have a couple tears like in the side, just from, you know, wearing it and sure. snagging on stuff. And you can kind of fix it with your own little, little sewing kit and it looks fine. Totally. You know, somebody's not going to call you out for it. Which well, is nice. and of course I wear a, a wool cap everywhere I go. And the reason why I wear a wool cap is because I'm bald. So, um, <laughs> for those that are curious, just wear it cause it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, for those that are curious about like why I always wear this hat, it's because I'm always bumping into something with my head. So I do wear, it's a thick wool. It's they're made in, in Ireland. Uh, the name actually escapes me. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll look real quick here. So it is, uh, the Boyne Valley knitwear made in Ireland. They're, you know, they're 40, 50 bucks, but they're pretty thick. So I can bounce my cranium off them. Has a brim on it. It does. And it's, they actually do super well in the rain. Yeah. So I don't really worry about uh, the rain with them. Yeah. They, they last literally forever. The only time I've had to buy other ones is because I've lost them. I've left them somewhere, but they literally last forever. I mean, I wear them almost every single day. And I like the fact that I'm get, I've got some sun protection on my bald head, but that you don't stand out again, like the tourists. So wearing a, a baseball cap 
in most of the world um, is not common. Like people don't tend to wear baseball caps outside of North America. So you stand out as as someone that's not local, whereas a black wool cap, they don't even notice. Should be the taxi driver, you know, yeah, going, I mean, going to work. Yep, right? totally. I mean, I can be in Reykjavik and they're going to start talking to me in Icelandic and I could be somewhere in northern part of France and they're going to speak to me in French because I I look more like a local when you're not not dressed like a tourist. No, definitely. I agree. I, you know, I have that gray one. I decided not to wear it, you know, so that we don't have the dueling flat cap thing going on. <laughs> we look but, like a couple of Uber drivers. Don't yeah, we? but mine, you know, it sticks out. Like, so I, I still like it. You know, I have, I have issues, you know, that I have to pay attention to regarding sun on my skin and stuff like that. You know, just cause I'm out, out in the sun all the time for work, I wouldn't wear it like out in the heat of the day. Yeah, sure. But you know, in the evenings I like, I like having a little head cover on. Yeah. I do need to find one that's, that's a little bit better for the heat. Cause if it is real, I like hot conditions. I prefer to be warm than cold. So it doesn't typically bother me, but when it's really hot out, a black wool cap, you do feel it. You do start to sweat. You'll know. Yeah, you start to know. Something else I want to uh, riff on. I'm not promoting anyone's product. I don't really think that they're out there. Are uh, hooded down vests. Do an internet search. <laughs> you will come up with either stuff that's like in the $20 range that's purely just for show. And maybe one or two companies out there that have a hooded down vest. So I don't know if I got to talk to Patrick Ma about this, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, I I swear by my, my down vests just as a backup, as a backup pillow, wear it in the sleeping bag. If all of a sudden it's just a little bit too cold and, you know, gets me to the next level. You know, if you'd have to keep the core warm when you're riding your motorcycle, I mean, that's like, it's money. I won't say they've fallen out of favor because you still, you see people wearing them, but I think like the technical hooded vest needs to be addressed on belay where you just, you know, you're going to be standing there for three hours while your buddies are climbing and you just got to throw something on and it's keep your keep core, core warm yeah. and then maybe flip it up over your neck or over your head and the elements can kind of stay out while you're doing your thing. And you got your Marina wool underneath. And I don't know, we got to explore that. Uh, I think, I think <laughs> that's a challenge. I think you're right. Mom. And probably like about a year and a half ago, I would have pushed back on it. I don't think that they are in favor. I got one, uh, triple lot started to make a down vest and I picked one up and I, that's what I use it for. I use it on the motor motorcycle to keep the core warm because I don't tend to wear heated gear. It's super compact. So yeah, yeah you, you yeah. can use it as a pillow. If you've got a shell on, usually because the shell does a great job of blocking the wind and usually in the rain, et cetera. Uh, but you need to still have a little bit of insulation and my arms don't tend to get cold. My core will. So ha- you're right. You can't lose I, keeping the core warm. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah so I would, I would have probably pushed back as like, why not have the whole down jacket? So you have a, like you can bring one thing along, but I think when you pair it as a layer with other things, yeah, it's yeah. they're super functional. And I don't even have one to talk about. I found a few out there. Well, yeah, take a look not- at Tad just came out with a, a wool, or maybe it's a, a performance. It's either a performance, not wool, excuse me. It's a performance down, you know, just a, vest. a basic vest shell. I think it's got a little bit of DWR on it, black, super understated. I think it's down, or maybe it's a synthetic material. You got to aim for the hoodie one. Though. Uh, it isn't, it isn't hooded. <laughs> that's All right. I got you. So that's the whole package you got to have. <laughs> right? that's the- yeah, that's for sure. There's a couple other things that you know, that we use. I mean, I, I've talked about these before, but these American optical sunglasses, you know, they, I buy them myself. They're not sponsored or anything like that, but they're only 70 bucks for an American made glass, or you can get, you know, shatter resistant. They're just super simple and they're really nice American made sunglasses for 70 bucks. It also is a currency too, by the way, I found like when you had to buy yourself, buy your way out of jail, but you know, since you know, it's replaceable, you know, if you have to pass it on to somebody, you know, you can. 
Yeah, no, that's true. As a that border, for, that border guard yeah, well, that yeah, helps as you. A out. Thanks for you know, yeah, hooking you up in some way. Yeah, I got you. you no, know, that makes sense. You, know. you can carry a couple of them, and when they're seventy bucks, you're able to buy a couple. You're not going to lose sleep. Yeah, exactly. Know? And you could probably pick up a cheap pair of sunglasses somewhere till you get back home. Anything else come to mind on kind of the daily carry stuff? Yeah, I will. When I travel where it's not just like, you know, coming from California over to Arizona in my own gear, I always have a tire pressure gauge and a pencil and a Sharpie. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Sharpie is a good call. And I even reused uh, some little carrier that has a uh, Velcro on the back. So you can kind of stick it in a, in a car, like a rental car. The tire pressure gauges that I, that I always have with me have PSI and uh, also bar. Sure. And, you know, for, I mean, I guess, you know, if you're, if you're comfortable with one or the other and I am, yep. but you know, if I have to show somebody, especially when you're in the Americas, we'll say North America, you know, Hey, I want to run my tires at 32 PSI, you know, and they only know bar, you have to be able to show them you know, yeah. a little mark. Cause what or, is it? What is it? 14.2 PSI per bar or something like yeah. that? So it'll be like one point. I mean, actually some sometimes the little markers, it's hard to like, yeah. you know, like for a tire pressure gauge, it's only in bar. I prefer that if we're only working in barometric pressure. Sure. But uh, I always have that, for example, when, even if we're renting a car in Western Europe, first thing I do is a walk around on the, out. it doesn't, I don't care if they just told me, nah, there's no dings. Everything's fine at the rental agency at the Frankfurt airport. Always do a walk around. I always make sure that there's a spare. I always make sure the spare has as much air as the rears are going to need. Sure. I mean, it sounds geeky, but totally I, I, true. it's after getting burned a bunch of times with, you know, having no Well, you spare. can waste a half a day of your vacation easily yeah, trying to get or a tire work fixed. If you're working, you yeah. know, like, Hey, now what? You yeah. Know? So I, that's the one thing I always have. And pencils obviously can write on almost anything. Right. And a Sharpie as well. So yeah. you know, if I have to make notes on something, I always have that some kind of, I still favor the original Leatherman tool, but a multi-tool. And I don't yeah. mean the ones where there's so many things on it yeah. that, you know, you, you can't remember how to pull out the bottle over mm-hmm. there, but just the basic ones that have like the pliers, the wire cutter, you know, like a Phillips type screwdriver, the bl- like one or two of the blade screwdrivers, and maybe a, just a knife blade. I still carry though the one of those on every trip because something will come up. Something yeah, where will, you need a set of pliers. It could That's be like so in the hotel room, just yeah. the tighten the shower curtain, yeah. you know, or it could be in the, the you know the rig that, that you know somebody said, oh everything's fine, you know you're going to be getting this 110 Land Rover, and we had our guy go through it, and the first thing you know you get in there and. And then like the door latch doesn't work mm-hmm. or you got to tighten down, you know, some band clamp on something. Totally. <laughs> it happens. You it does happen. You can't make this kind of stuff up. So yeah. those are my solid, you know, go-tos. For, yeah. Good you know, suggestions. And we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but I think one of the things as travelers is coming to terms with the limited amount of stuff that we actually need. I think it's, it's easy to get attached to the stuff that we travel with or think that we need this laundry list of everyday carry or that we've got to have everything that we might possibly need uh, in most places of the world, those people need the same things too. And you can find them. um, You can borrow them. You can ask for help. Once I kind of changed my mindset and realized what I really need is a way to communicate and navigate, which our phones do both now. Uh, The phones have a flashlight on them as well. And then I need to be able to pay for things like, like I've lost, let's say I've lost all of my luggage and all I've got is what's on my person. Um, You can buy stuff for cheap anywhere in the world. I mean, yeah. 
you're not going to go necessarily get the brand names you want or whatever. But if you've got a way to pay for stuff, so you're going to want to have a couple of days worth of cash on you in the local currency. If you've got a credit card. Um, so if we've got our passport, our phone and a means of commerce, then we're set. Everything else, we got to be prepared for it to disappear, get lost on in the luggage of the plane. <clears throat> yeah, and it just it. doesn't show up. I've seen so many travelers just kind of, kind of lose their way on their trip because something was missing or that they didn't have something that they thought they needed or something broke maybe that they brought along that they really had a lot of expectation around. So I think letting go of these expectations, just realizing that the adventure, the unpredictability of travel is the reason why we're traveling. Oh, 100%. And kind of keeping keeping those few items that we know that we need close to the vest. I do also like to bring along a Garmin inReach because if you lose local cellular, which does happen a lot in the developing world, your family may not understand what's going on, or you may not be able to communicate, but having a Garmin inReach, they've got these minis, they literally fit in your pocket and you now have a means of satellite communication. Anything goes wrong, could get it caught in a a sudden war zone, which has happened. I mean, I was right at the border of Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. And all of a sudden the a war broke out in the Fergana Valley and they weren't going to let me into the country. I was stuck at the border and being able to communicate via satellite allowed us to, to resolve that problem. But it's just a recognition that we should be able to communicate. We should be able to pay for things that we need and we should be able to have you know our identification, our passport on us. Yeah. And even a backup somehow photocopy of your passport, you know, address and phone number of consulates, you know, appropriate consulates and embassies for whatever passport you do carry in whatever country you're in, just stuff like that. But that can be on a little piece of paper stuff in your pocket. Yep. Um, And you can have copies of your passport on your phone photographs. You can have it up in the cloud as well. So that way you can get some support family back home. Yep. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of the different angles to it. I mean, I, I found that overcoming adversity when you're traveling, that's like part of the fun. Once you it get is. over the initial, oh my God, this is so lame. Yeah. Then you just go, wait a second. This is probably going to be cool. One time I was working uh, in Peru, we were teaching a high angle rope rescue course in Machu Picchu. Mm. All cool places to be doing that kind of, you know, no doubt. course. <laughs> and uh, so in Cusco, as it turned out, there were a lot of jokes that went around about the fact that I lost my little, it was like the, the little visa stamp that went, it was a separate piece of paper that went in the passport when we landed in Lima. Sure. And uh, so I had to go get a replacement. And there we are in Cusco. And meanwhile, you know, we had like two days of downtime and Cusco is a cool place. Super cool. So, uh, so everyone else kind of wandered off. And uh, one of my friends, he's a French Canadian, Charles, he's like, no, nah, I'll go with you. And it was like this whole adventure throughout Cusco because he went to the office where we were supposed to get this replacement stamp. And then it was closed. And then they told us where to go. But we got there and it was like lunchtime. And yeah. it just turned into this whole adventure walking. Yeah around Cusco, you know, in whatever, 12,300 feet of sea level, huffing it around. It was just a cool day of trying to overcome adversity. Of course, we ended up getting, you know, I ended up getting this stamp put back in my passport so that, you know, we could identify who I was and what I was supposed to be doing there and all this kind of stuff. Sure. And it was a hotel that pointed it out when we handed in our passports, you know, and they're like, Hey, where's this little stamp thing? But, but it was like a whole day of us just running around and it was cool. And it was something we did. We obviously didn't count on, yeah. but it was fun. And yeah. It's, it's almost like in the moment, maybe some people feel anxiety, maybe some people feel frustration. Maybe they feel like that their plans have changed, but if we can just reassure ourselves that in the future, our future self will look back at that adventure, of course, from a place of tranquility, like you and I are sitting here talking on a podcast, I think. Cahill said 
something similar to that in one of his books of looking back on these adventures from a place of tranquility. They are charming. Like these experiences, we look back on them and they are, they're wonderful and we learn from them and they, they make us smile in the moment. We feel frustrated, but if we keep reassuring ourselves in the future, we're going to look back on this and we're going to be so (laughs) stoked that it happened, but it doesn't feel like that in the moment for sure. Yeah. That's when you have to kind of overcome it immediately and just see things for what they are and assess your surroundings and and, and your situation and go, yep. wait a second, I'm, I'm totally cool. Everything's I, fine. I don't have my is. luggage, but uh, you know, I'm wearing some clothes and I'll just buy a local t-shirt exactly. or whatever. And I see everyone wears that kind of hat. I'll yep. get one of those. You'll probably <laughs> be blending in better than anyone in your you know travel party. Totally. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Not getting too attached to an outcome, letting the adventure unfold as it's supposed to. And you can tell yourself positive things like, ah, I always wanted to replace that bag anyway, or <laughs> yeah, whatever. You know, for sure. It's a good yeah. excuse to get myself a Filson or something. Yeah, that's right. Well, Brian, somehow we have managed to not cover all the topics that we wanted to do where it's always where it, how it is. But I love it. That means we get to have podcast number four. Are there any new books? Is there anything you're jamming on right now? New podcasts? Something that you're really enjoying? I'm still into the, B- I keep listening to them over and over, the BBC History of the World mm. uh, podcasts, like 15 or 20 minutes long each, and they cover very unique topics. They're in the bandwidth as far as the time and the information where you suggestion. Can, we can retain a lot of it. Super cool. Super cool. And especially on a road trip, great to listen to. I think every every topic is maybe at the most a half hour Mm. of the topic and the narrator's cool. Any, anytime there's like a British voice, of course, I always pay attention <laughs> a little bit better. Yeah. It's kind of a colonial it, thing. It I don't know. I think it works. It totally works. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's good. And for as far as reading, other than like just boring things, that will put you to sleep for archaeological reports that I'm preparing. Mm-hmm. Track down, uh, I believe it's published by BMW, but it's History of GS. And I want to say it covered the first 30 years okay. of it. And I found that when I was doing some research for the, the Overland Journal article. And I still go to that. I'm really intrigued by the early ISDT airhead twins okay. that were you like pre GS. Okay. What else is happening these days? Oh yeah. A couple of websites that I like checking in on just to see what people for motorcycles, um, bike exif. Oh yeah. That was excellent. You know, stuff that's going on there, especially from Eastern Europe. Some of the makers, uh, it's not just of custom bikes, but then they have products for sale that are just insane. Cool controls, you know, aftermarket stuff, obviously, but just thinking way outside the box and influenced by their own motorcycle history and trajectory, which is different than, you know, what I would say as a guy from SoCal growing up in the motocross desert kind of world. Sure. Their background into motorcycles is different. Yep. You know? And um, so anyway, that's a good suggestion. Yeah. Bike X, if they've just got beautiful motorcycles on there. Yeah. And the photography, I I think it's one of their things. You can't send in cruddy, cruddy imagery. Super good. (laughs) No, it's super good. Well, it's funny that you talk about the BBC podcast because that's what I wrote down here for my current read. Bill Bryson has a book called a short history of nearly everything. And it is, it is excellent. I've, I've tried to kind of dig back into some first principle stuff and learn a little bit about physics and science and in this particular case, kind of the history of the world. And I'm about halfway through it and it is transfixing. It's written in a style that someone that isn't a scientist or isn't a historian or isn't a physicist can really understand. And I just find it to be 
a fascinating view into how the earth came about, how cultures started to develop and how science started to develop in the world. And that's a really good one. I'll have to check that one. Yeah, out. It's, I read it's other really good by Bill Bryson, but not that one. He's ac- excellent, yeah. incredible writer, uh, certainly inspiring for me as a writer as well. So again, how do people find out more about you? You're a regular contributor to Overland Journal, which we greatly appreciate. And then you've got a, an Instagram as well. Yeah. Brian, Brian dot bass or yeah. Yeah. Something like that. You yeah. know how it is. Yeah. <laughs> there used to be a bass player in Canada who spelled his name like mine, B-R-Y-O-N. And, and somehow when you did a search, it would always pump to that, which was okay. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally, <laughs> Three totally. pages in where you started seeing all the boring archaeological yeah. reports and projects and stuff. Well, and if anybody has any feedback or you'd like to fill me in on the watch that you've come to love, we would certainly love to hear from you. You can reach me at scott.a.brady on Instagram. Kind of let me know. Maybe your dad gave you a cool watch too. And it'd be, it'd be great to, to hear those stories and we can share those on a future podcast. And Brian, I'm looking forward to having you back on, man. Thanks for having me. Look forward to being on again. Yeah. Thank you. And we thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>